This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Mark Appel. So Mark Appel is a pro baseball player. He was actually drafted three different times which is crazy because the draft rules in baseball, you can be drafted out of high school, but if you decide to go to college or forgo that draft's choice, you know you basically have to wait three years before you can be drafted again. So he was drafted out of high school by the Detroit Tigers in the 15th round with the 450th overall pick back in 2009. Then he decided instead to go pitch at Stanford University where he had a scholarship offer, so a great opportunity for him to do that. He was drafted again after his junior year. So this time in the first round, and not just in the first round in the top 10, he was drafted number eight overall by the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was actually the year that I met him but then he decided to go back and pitch his senior year at Stanford kind of rolled the dice but then after his senior year at Stanford he was drafted number one overall by his hometown team the Houston Astros in 2013 I mean just a crazy storybook ending uh, for just getting up to that point just a crazy awesome thing but this guy faced incredible expectations right because if you're the number one overall draft pick, we're talking about names like Chipper Jones and Alex Rodriguez and Bryce Harper and Ken Griffey Jr., like all these amazing players, right? You're now on that short list. There, there are only dozens of guys in baseball history that have been selected number one overall. The expectations were incredibly, incredibly high. And unfortunately for Mark, he never lived up to him, okay? He had a lot of struggles in the minor leagues. Uh, We're going to get into that a lot in this particular episode. Back in 2018, at the age of 26, he actually decided to step away from baseball. It was kind of a pseudo-retirement. But then in a shocking move, he popped back up on mine and everybody else's radar in 2021 before the season because he was making a a comeback, right? He goes from literally being a bust, being an absolute bust, number one draft pick bust, to now he's trying to make a comeback and pitch in the major leagues. So here's the thing about this particular conversation. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, well, I don't like baseball. This isn't going to be a valuable conversation. This guy has some perspective that I think is important to anybody of any ilk that is into any type of sport whatsoever. There's some great nuggets here about how we should look at our jobs and how we should look at them in relationship uh, to our basically our standing with God and our value overall as a person. But I will say, if you do like baseball, This is a tremendous episode because we're talking to a guy who's made a career of it, right? Who's had some struggles and we talk through those struggles, but we have some other things that we talk about. We talk about some of his favorite players ever, what he thinks about some of the new things happening in baseball, trying to speed the game up, how everything's being pimped now. But guys, I really want you to focus in and listen to to the end here because I love how he answered the very final question of the day. So you're going to make sure you stick around with that. And guys, I just got to tell you, there's, there's one quick thing on this. That it was it wasn't perfect here, but you know he was on the road whenever he did this interview, so we're just so glad we were able to chat with him. But it's not the, uh, a studio operation on his end. He was he was at a coffee shop in Nashville. He was outside, and there was kind of some wind and some trucks in the background. Then he had to move inside. It's not a perfect thing, but don't don't worry about that. That, that none of that matters. Okay, he moved inside. He moved outside. None of that matters. Focus on the words. Okay, focus on the words that he said. It's a tremendously valuable thing to hear some of the things that he's learned at such a young age. But guys, I'm not going to keep in front of you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Mark Appel, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. 
I'm glad to have you. It has been uh, quite a long time since we've connected, but I'm so glad that we were able to reconnect because, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of baseball today. And as I probably said in the intro, if you guys don't like it, just deal with it. All right. If you want to go hang out in China with all those communists, go for it. But here in America, we talk <laughs> about baseball. But, you know, for you, most kids growing up, Mark, and, and myself included, we grew up imagining what it would be like to be a professional baseball player, right? Playing under the lights and playing in big games, you know, pitching or hitting, whatever. But you actually did it. You actually became a professional baseball player. You got paid money and you're still being paid money to play a child's game. So for you, I guess the question to start out here is when was the moment when you felt like going pro was likely, if not inevitable? Because a lot of people like they, they dream about it, but there's never that moment to where it's like, I could probably do this. When was that time for you? It, it had to have been in high school when, uh, you know, and, and I would say going pro for baseball is a lot different than football or basketball or anything like that because those guys that go pro in the other sports i mean they go straight to the league basically mm -hmm. in baseball i mean you've got six seven eight levels of minor league baseball that you have to get through so so being a pro baseball player like it sounds great but it's still a grind and there's there's just a lot of uh things that come along with it but but it was in high school when you know when i had college coaches and pro scouts come into my games and and telling me afterwards hey you know, you got good stuff and, and it was it was kind of their expertise, you know, speaking that into my life and and, and saying, Hey, you should you should really work hard and, and you know, you have the potential to to do to do really well. Yeah, and for these scouts again, really start early. I remember the first time, I think it was my ninth grade year, we played against this kid and there was a ton of scouts there and he was throwing like ninety two, ninety three in high school, which for us, we had never seen that before. Oh yeah. And so yeah. when you get up to the plate, you're like, I'm going to die. I'm definitely going to die. Cause if I swing, it's going to hit me directly in the middle of my face and that's it. Like it's terrifying, but there's always that, that moment where you kind of feel like that's going to work out for you. And for you, the dream kind of came true when you were drafted uh, as a high school senior in the 15th round by the tigers. And so for a lot of people, that's the moment, right? That's the moment where they have to really decide, like, am I going to go pro right now? Let's go ahead and start this journey right now, or am I going to do it later? Because in baseball, it's either you get drafted right out of high school or you have to wait three years. So why not go pro right at the ripe old age of 18 years old? Why go to Stanford instead to go pitch? I think it's because it's Stanford. Uh, you know, when, when you have an opportunity like that to be able to go to college, um, get an education, and still work on you know, your, your childhood dream of being a, a major league baseball player. It's like Stanford has the tools, the resources, the coaches that can make that dream a reality. Um, and then you're getting world-class education too. And, you know, the Bay area and California is like pretty nice weather all, all year round. Like it's, it's not a bad place to spend three or four years of your life. Um, you know, just making new friends, learning a lot of new things. Um, and then, and then, yeah, working on your game uh, to be able to hopefully take that into, you know, into pro ball. Yeah, it's certainly a good feather in your cap to, to have that university on your resume, your literal resume and just your generic resume. But it worked out well for you because after your junior year at Stanford, you were drafted again. So uh, you and I met the day that you got drafted uh, because at this time you weren't drafted in the 15th round. You were drafted in the first round and not just the first round. You were in the top 10, right? You were picked eighth overall by the Pirates. Many pegged you actually to go first overall that year, but teams were kind of worried that you might decide to go back to Stanford. They were worried about the signing bonus and you did 
did end up going back to Stanford. So exactly what they were terrified about is what happened. So I guess walk me through, you know, why go back to Stanford? You were guaranteed at that exact moment, not only to be a professional, but to be a millionaire. You were reportedly offered close to $4 million in a signing bonus. You didn't seem to have anything else to prove, you know, in the Pac-10 at the time, you know, now the Pac-12 at Stanford, you had nothing left to prove, you know, why, why go back? Yeah. I mean, there was, there was honestly a lot of reasons. Um, you know, whenever I talk about this story, um, it, it's definitely a unique thing because most, most often guys that get signed or drafted in the, the top 10 picks, like they're signing, it's millions of dollars. It's life-changing money. Um, and I think I've just always had a different, like, you know, value system than, than the world. Um, it's like, and, and it's and it's a value system, and we can talk about this later. But it's a value system that I'm still you know, like refining. And there's been things that have happened in my life that have like either confirmed that value system or caused me to change it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the value system that I have is is very unique, and I don't think it's the common value system. So um, for me, it, it's not about money or uh, even you know the ability to to you know go chase this dream. It's it's about the people. Um, so, so one of the big things in my life was, uh, uh just being a team leader, uh, at Stanford. So I had, I was, I had a great junior season. I was drafted in the first round. Um, but at the, at the time that I was drafted, we had failed in getting to Omaha. So I knew that there's only one more chance to get to Omaha. Um, a lot of my teammates were guys that I was really feeling like I was like getting to the point in our relationship where I was like having an impact and, and um, inspiring them and like being able to uh, introduce them to Christianity and share my faith with them. Um, and honestly, I just wanted another year of being able to pour into my teammates. Um, and, and then on a baseball, from the baseball front, I was like, man, I've gotten better leaps and bounds every single year at Stanford. Why would I think that I couldn't further my career even though I'm not in pro ball, but I can get better while I'm still at Stanford. There's a lot of, lots of things. I mean, everyone, even the best pitchers in the game, they're always working on getting better. And so um, I, I just saw it as like, you know what, if, if the money doesn't work out, you know, after my senior year, um, I feel pretty proud about the reasons why I went back to school. Um, and, and fortunately the money did work out, but, but again, that's not the reason why I wanted to go back to school. Um, on top of that, I was able to start pro ball, uh, with, you know, with, with my degree, I finished my education. So, um, there was just so many reasons why it made sense at that time to go back to school. Um, but from, from an outsider's perspective, it was, it was like, this dude's crazy. Like, what is he doing? You know? Um, and, and I, I learned pretty, pretty quickly how to, how to manage, you know, outside opinions. Well, I remember whenever you decided that you were going to go back, I was terrified for you. Cause I was like, dude, your arm's just going to fall off. One day you're going to wake up. Your arm's going to be laying there right on the, on the table or on the bed. There's no way that you're going to be able to kind of make it you, but you definitely rolled the dice, but we'll get back into kind of the trajectory of your baseball story here in a second. But I'm going to go back to something you said about value system. Cause I don't want to give too short a shrift to that because again, you, you kind of described in a, in a 30,000 foot view, you know, how your value system was just different, but let's bring it a little bit closer to ground level. Now go into what your particular value system is because you mentioned your Christian faith and obviously that's how you and I have connected and stayed connected over the years. But how did that directly influence what you were doing outside of just pouring into your teammates and, and perhaps, you know, having a prayerful decision-making process, whereas other people would just have a pragmatic one? Yeah, I, I think it, I think it, it, you know, 
like in Christian circles, you, you talked about the worldview, right? So it's, it's this understanding of, of, all right, you know, who am I? Um, how did I get here? What am I here for? Um, what's my purpose? What should I be doing? And, and you kind of work your way back to figure out what am I doing today? And, you know, what are the reasons for why I'm doing what I'm doing? And, um, and, and I, I think, I think if you're a Christian, you really understand that, um, you know, God's love is not for creation, even though he loves creation, it's for his people. And, and, and so if like we, if we start to understand that, like God has loved us, therefore I should love others in the same way that God has loved us. And I've received the love of God. Then you, you, you start to make decisions that are very people centric and, and relational centric. Um, and, and, and it can be it can be difficult to figure out how to do that because at the same time uh, you have your own dreams and your own goals and, and maybe it's a career dream or or you know um, whatever an educational dream whatever it may be um, and so, and so you just you just try to like frame your decisions through this lens of like okay I'm called to love God and to love others um, and I'm called to do that wherever I am and uh, and after, you know, like in that specific decision, after spending a lot of time in prayer, it's like the best way for me to love God and love others is to go back to school. And it's not something that I have to like explain or, or defend to anyone. It's, it's something that I, I feel felt really clear about and still, you know, have no regrets about that decision. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I think values is like, it's like, you know, family, um, which is relational, right? It's, your, your teammates, your coaches, um, the fans, even when it comes to baseball, it's like caring for those people because they are all deeply loved by God um, is, is ultimately the way that, like, I think Christ has called us to live. And, and that's played out through our attitude, through our efforts, um, through the things that we can control because there's a lot of times where you try to love someone and they don't love you back. And, and mm. um, you know, it, it, it's it's something that you just have to you know let go of and and just know that all right god is god is ultimately in control and i'm not going to change anyone's lives um, it's going to be god that's doing it but he can use me to do that so r- real quick in that same vein and we'll certainly get back to to baseball here in a second things did work out and we'll get into that here in just a second they worked out pretty well uh for you after your senior year however let's say it didn't go well Let's say you got hurt or let's say even worse than getting hurt. Let's say you were just terrible, right? Like you, you lost velocity on the fastball. There was no zip on the slider, you know, that you just, you got hammered, right? You had a ERA close to like eight or something like that. And then now you're, you're tumbling down the, the draft board, right? And all that money that you had, the guaranteed money's not there anymore. Do you honestly, in your heart of hearts, feel like you would still be singing the same tune? Because I always get a little bit of a chuckle when people that are mega successful are like, oh yeah, I mean, I trusted God and now look at all my Mercedes. Like it's a little bit different for those people. I want to hear from the people where they trusted God and it didn't quite work out the way they wanted it to and God showed them something else. But from your perspective, do you honestly feel like you'd have the same outlook? Oh, hundred percent. And, and that's the thing about like decisions. It's like, once you make that decision, you know, it's like, if you can make it with confidence and conviction and peace, it's like, it doesn't really matter what the, the alternative would have been, right? Because, you know, you don't know the future. And so, um, you make the best decision you can at the time, um, for the best reasons that you can, you know, you can come up with. 
um, whether that's faith or whether that's something else, right? For me, it's faith. And, uh, and, and, and then whatever the results are, like, that's what the results are. And as long as you're going into it, like, with a clear mind, you're like, the only way this decision is successful is if everything works out, right? And it's funny because, like, you talk about, oh, having high ERAs and career tumbling and all that stuff. And it's like, that could have very well happened for me my senior year, but it didn't. Well, it started to happen after I got drafted. And so, you know, you look at it and you're like, all right, well, maybe if I lost all that money, you know, the, the you know, couple million dollars that I had in the bag my junior year and I walked away with college with nothing, like I would still would have had peace. But this, you could say the same thing about my career. It's like people were pegging me to be, you know, $150, $200 million career player, right? And I haven't made a single, I basically made minor league salary for like six years after, you know, after I signed. And, and, and that's just the way it's gone. But do I have any regrets about anything, any decisions that I've made? Um, I was like, I, I honestly don't think I, I can say I do. Um, there may be a few decisions here and there where I think God used those as like teaching moments for me um, and, and humbling moments for me. And I, I think that's a really beautiful thing is, is how God works in our lives. Like we don't have to, we don't have to look at our past mistakes and our failures and say, man, I, I'm just, I'm, to, I'm a total screw up. Like there's nothing good in me. Um, we can actually, and I think God, that's how God uses those situations and those decisions. Um, my dad always tells me, you know, he's like, whenever you're making a decision, sometimes God just wants you to choose, right? And the beautiful thing about who God is and how he works is he's going to bless the good decisions and he's going to redeem the bad ones. And, and at the end of the day, like when you, when you start to understand that you read Romans eight twenty eight, it's like, I know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. It's like, that's how it plays out in real life. It's like God blesses the good decisions and he redeems the bad decisions. And at the end of the day, your character is going to be built. And you're going to be a better man for it. And I, I think that's in, in just an incredible like way and an incredible freeing way to look at your life and, and your decision. Yeah, I appreciate you going to, into all that detail. But let's kind of go back to after you throw your last pitch your senior year at Stanford. So you didn't have you know the great Omaha moment, but only one team can have that. But you pitch your senior year. You do great. You're probably a little bit better than your junior year. I think most people would say there's no college to go back to now. Okay, right now it's pro or bust. And your hometown team, right, the Houston Astros have the number one pick and they take you, right? So so this is just that magical moment. You're now on a short list of number one overall picks with guys like, you know, Hall of Famers or Hall of Fame caliber players like King Griffey Jr. and A-Rod and Chipper Jones and Joe Maurer and Bryce Harper and on and on and on and on, right? Take me through that whole thing, right? You, you played baseball your entire life. Your hometown team selects you number one overall. Like your, your gamble paid off. Take me through it. Yeah, it was, it was a surreal moment. Um, you know, I, I would have never, never in a million years expected that to happen. Uh, but, you know, over the course of my college career, like you kind of see that trajectory. And then, I mean, so, so many things outside of my control, like just the fact that the Astros were a bad team. I was born in Houston. I rooted for them. I went to games watching, you know, Jeff Bagwell and Mike Vigio and all these guys when I was a kid. And, uh, and then I'm all of a sudden in a place where I'm, a like logical choice for my hometown team to take me with the top pick. It was, it was surreal. Um, and I can say that's only like only by God orchestrating something. 
Um, that was pretty crazy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was it was a day filled with excitement and joy, um, you know, and, and and a lot of like hope and expectation. And uh, and so it, it was it was yeah, it was a surreal moment. Yeah, it's just a crazy thing. I remember just being so unbelievably happy for you because I thought you were a lunatic when you didn't go after your junior year and you know, you explained all the reasons for it. But you teed this up a little bit in terms of the struggles that you had once you got to the minor leagues, but you know, you make your way through the minors with the Astros. You had some high points and some success, but you also got knocked around a bit. You make it all the way to the Astros AAA team, the Fresno Grizzlies, the level just before the majors. Uh, but after finishing the 2015 season, you know the team that drafted you, your hometown team, they trade you to the Phillies, okay? And then you begin the 2016 season with the Phillies AAA squad, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, maybe the coolest name in baseball. But then you hurt your shoulder. And then while rehabbing your shoulder, you hurt your elbow, right? And then early in the season, in, in that year in June, you undergo season-ending surgery on your elbow. I'm assuming up to that point, you had never had any major pitching arm injuries. Then in 2017, you go back to AAA Lehigh Valley. You hurt your shoulder again, but you did end up starting about 17, I think it was 17 games, but your ERA was above five. You end up getting designated for assignment. And then we go to 2018. Here I am blowing through your entire, you know, you know, professional career. But you announce, you know, at the ripe old age of 26 now that you're going to step away from baseball, which is otherwise known as retiring, right? So from number one overall draft pick to bust, right? That's the headline. That was actually the headline for, for somebody. I can't, I don't know if it was Bleacher Report or something like that, but number one overall pick, a few years in the minors, and then you're done. So take us through that entire process of going from getting drafted to now you're out of baseball. Gosh, it, it, it felt like it was kind of a, a slow, uh, just like descent from the top in, in a way. So, you know, it was like only one player every year is drafted first overall. Like, that's just, it's crazy. Like, when I talk about my college career and I talk about getting drafted and all that stuff, I feel like I'm talking about someone else <laughs> at times yeah. because, because my career took a very drastic turn. So, like... In 2014, my first full season, right before the season, I had an appendectomy. And after that, like, things just started to, like, well, in 2014, like, pretty rapidly decline into, oh, my gosh, what's happening? Like, I remember, I remember it was basically one-year anniversary of me getting drafted and signing with the Astros and being at the top of my – and one year later, I have, like, a 90 RA in A-ball, and I'm like – what in the world is going on? I, I had no answers as to why I was bad and why I wasn't playing well. And that's almost more frustrating than like just playing bad in itself. It's like, yeah, obviously I don't want to play, but, but I'm working hard and I'm not turning over every single stone I can think of to try to figure out, all right, how do I write the ship? And um, yeah. And, and that was just one of those, you know, just, I think just humbling moments of like, all right, there are things that are uh, in my control that I can't figure out. And then there are things that are outside of my control that I think God is simultaneously teaching me how to deal with and understand. Uh, and so uh, a after the 2014 season, I mean, that was like a fairly from a, from a baseball player's perspective, it was like a fairly traumatic year. Like I get it. We're playing a kid's game. And so like even failures, yeah. like you're still, you're still getting to go out there, but um I mean, when you care about something and it, it becomes your livelihood and your job, it's like just trying to compare to anyone who's working in the workplace and be like, go from having the best year of your life to literally like 
trying to do the simplest things and being unable to do it and not knowing why you can't do it. Um, and it was, it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and then I, I think from there that, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly what's going through the Astros, you know, front office and kind of what their plans were, but obviously they wanted to win and, and they kind of saw me as like, all right, a really high potential prospect who is really struggling. And maybe, I mean, I, I assume they're like, well, let's, let's maybe move him to a different organization. Maybe that'll be good for him and we can still get some value out of him. Um, and, and so that's why they, they traded me after the 2015 season. And, and 2015 was hard because, you know, that was like the, the year the Astros like actually were knocking on the door in the playoffs and being like, Hey, like we're coming, we're, we're, mm. we're going to be good. We got, we got some, some good young players and, and I was in AAA watching all that happen and feeling like, man, if, if, if I have a really good game, I, I could be the next guy up. And, uh, and eventually, you know, uh, like there was no, there was really no opportunity at that point. And at the end of the season, they ended up trading me. So I go to the, go to the Phillies and end up, uh, starting in AAA and pretty quickly that first year, like I have shoulder issues, I have elbow issues. I end up having surgery. Um, and I come back in 2017 and I'm thinking, gosh, this has got to be the year. I just got put on the 40 man roster, you know, like I had an opportunity to make it to the big leagues. I got an opportunity to help the Phillies, like start writing the ship in their organization. Um, and, and, uh, and I'm battling through pain in my shoulder basically the entire season until it gets to a point where I'm like, I can't, I can't keep doing it. It's like, not only am I damaging or injuring myself, but I am, I'm not putting our team in a good position to win games. And, and the best thing for me and for the team is, is for me to like say something and, and get the, you know, get the, the treatment that I need to, to get back on the field. Well, that, that year doing treatment, it's like, man, I would check off every single box and uh, in, in like the training room. And as soon as I'd go out and start throwing again, it would just start hurting. And I'm like, gosh, what, what the heck is going on? Um, and by the end of 2017, you know, not just the season, but like by the end of the year, when we were in the off season, it's like, I hadn't been able to throw even in the off season. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall. It's like, man, I'm probably going to need surgery and shoulder surgery takes a long time to rehab. And I'm already in a point in a place where I'm spending, I'm not competing. I'm, you know, frustrated. I'm away from family. I'm, I'm at a point where it's like, I just need, I, I need a change of pace. I need to figure out, you know, some things of like kind of losing myself in, in a way of like, all right, I'm, I'm not around the people that I love. I'm not doing what I love anymore. Um, and, and it was, it was a struggle because in, in some ways it, it almost seemed like giving up or quitting. And, you know, I've, I've been, I've been, <laughs> I think raised to like persevere and, and, keep working. Um, but in other ways it was like, gosh, it would actually be worse for me to keep doing this. Like this isn't helping me. It's not helping anyone else that I'm around. And so the best thing, um, I, you know, had to make that decision was to, to step away and kind of hit the reset button and refocus and, um, ended up, ended up choosing to have surgery, but not, it probably wasn't until a year after that. So I, I basically lived a whole year without ever thinking I'd play baseball again. Um, and so it, it was, yeah, it was a really interesting time. But when I, when I made that decision to step away, I, I had so much peace about it. 
And I had so much joy about it too. Um, but it took a long time to get to that point. Well, Mark, you step away from the game that you love, that you've given so much time and effort to. And for almost the entirety of the professional baseball population, whenever you step away, whenever that time comes and whenever that happens, that's it. I mean, there is no there is no road home. There is no comeback. There's no great ending to the story. And I remember, you know, whenever I heard that you retired in 2018, I was like, oh, you know, that's unfortunate. I really wish that guy would have had a better career, blah, blah, blah. And then you just kind of move on with your life. And then here you go. All of a sudden in 2021, you pop up on my Twitter feed again. You're making a comeback. You, you, you announced that you're attempting a comeback to professional baseball. So I don't have, I normally have an exact question, right? I don't have an exact question. I have so many questions in my head. Why come back? Did you blow all your money? Were you working at like a gas station in the meantime? And that wasn't helping, you know, what was your velocity like, you know, whenever you came back, were you pitching the whole time that you were gone and you were just like, you know, in your tunnel trying to figure it all out. And then you're one day you're going to come out of the back cave and throw 98. Take me through all of that. Uh, I mean, there, there are some thoughts about that, you know, getting to work under the radar um, is, is really fun, honestly, uh, because I, I lived under the microscope for a long time. And so, you know, whenever I would have a good game or a bad game, the articles were always written about me. Whenever I wasn't playing, it was like, you know, a guy like Lance McCullers, who we were at the same place, he mm-hmm. had a good game. And in the article talking about him and his successes, they would compare him to me. And I'm like, yeah, I was frustrated for myself. I was frustrated for Lance because like, I don't want to take the, his spotlight. And like, he's, I mean, he's just such a good guy and, and, and talented player. And, and so it's like, there was such a focus on, on Mark, you know, what, what's going on with Mark Bell? Why is he not playing well? Why are other guys playing well? All this stuff. And I just wanted to be like a, another guy on the team because that's all I was. It's like, yeah, I get it. All the hype and, and money and all that stuff. But it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, I'm just there to work just like everyone else. And um, yeah, so so getting to work under the radar was was a lot of fun because I didn't have reporters ask me how I'm feeling every day. I didn't have, like, I was able to kind of control the work. And uh, and when you're coming back from a, a shoulder surgery, like, it just takes a lot of time. And it's not a straight line recovery. You're going to have a lot of really good days and you're going to have a lot of really bad days. And, and that's just the way that it goes. And, and so it was nice to be able to give myself that long runway and say, all right, I've got, you know, two years to figure this out. I don't need to be back in two months, you know? And, and so if I have a stretch of like two or three weeks where I'm not feeling great, that's not going to frustrate me because that's the expectation. It's like, I know it's a, it's a marathon and, you know, every step in that marathon isn't going to feel great, you know, uh, but there's going to be a lot more good days than bad days. And if you have that, like you're, you, over time, you start to see the progress. And I was actually hoping to come back in 2020. You know, I was I was throwing bullpens on, on my own during spring training, just not with the team. And I was hoping that I'd feel at a good place, you know, you know, basically right when spring training ended to say, hey, Phillies, I'd love to come back. I'd love to maybe do like a longer spring training, actually face hitters, do a month or two, and then go back in the 2020 season. But obviously, COVID happened, and and minor league baseball was shut down for a whole year. So I, I saw that as a decent, decently good, you know, reentry point for me of uh, you know the 2021 season. So I I, sh- I shut my throne down for you know a month or two, 
kept working out and training and doing all that stuff and then started throwing again and got ready for, for this past season. Right. So, so how did the 2021 season go for you? And I guess, what are the prospects for you moving forward? Like what does 2022 look like? Cause I know whenever you step away, you're put on the restricted list, I believe. And so it's kind of different, like how the contracts work. So kind of take us through what, what, how this went and how it's looking for the near future. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the restricted list basically means we're hitting the pause button on your career. You know, so we still have your rights and we'll have your rights forever until you come back. Uh, and so, so there was, you know, so what that meant for me was I'm still under the original minor league contract with the Phillies. So they still had my rights. Um, they'll have my rights through next season as well. Uh, so I wouldn't be a free agent until I'm you know, 31. Uh, you know, and if I get called up next year, there's a lot of like nuance in baseball uh, yeah, that you have yeah. really have to be a baseball guy. But, but yeah, potentially, you know, if, if things go well, I could I'd probably be a Philly for the rest of my life. Um, you know, assuming they, they see me in, in their plans. But uh, 2021 season was up and down from a performance uh, perspective, but it was a total success from a health perspective. And that was the biggest thing. My last mm-hmm. full season healthy was 2015. So when you put it in that perspective, you're like, okay, it's been six years since Mark made it from start to finish without going on the disabled list, without having surgery or an injury or anything like that. And, and that's a huge win for me, even though I had a six ERA. You know, at the end of the season, I tweeted out, I was like, man, there's no way you can spend my stats to like be, you know, like to say that, oh man, I had a really successful season, but my goal for the season was to stay healthy, never miss a start and do everything that the Phillies asked me. And I did that. And, um, and, and now the next step is, all right, how do I do that better? You know, now that I'm healthy, how, how do I go out and perform and compete in a way that, um, you know, that actually makes them think long and hard about putting me in the big leagues because I'm, I'm helping the team out. I understand that. And that's got to be such a cool spot for you to be in because, and then there's players that you can look at, like obviously being a Cardinals fan, you look at a guy like Adam Wainwright a couple of seasons ago, it looked like his long story, maybe hall of fame career was coming to an end. And then last season he pitched huge stretches. Like he was going to be Cy Young winner for the national league. Absolutely yeah. unfathomable. And his, I think his fastball is topping out at 92, 93 these days. Yeah. He's getting down in, in Greg Maddox territory. All right, so if you're wondering why Mark is in a different place, it's because apparently they don't have outlets that work in the city of Nashville. Come on, Nashville. You're supposed to be a city of growth, but here's all these buildings without outdoor outlets that work. But we're going to go ahead and get into this because part of the reason why you and I reconnected is because on September the 17th of this year, you went viral with this tweet thread that you put out there. Um, And this tweet thread is great for people that love baseball, people that don't know anything about baseball, young kids that are playing, all that. But I'll read the first tweet and I'm going to get into some of the other things from the thread. The first tweet said this, In 2013, I was the number one overall pick in the MLB draft. Five years later, I was called the biggest bust in MLB history. Today, I'm working my way back, and I'm here to share both the hard-earned lessons I've learned along the way. The first or one of the early tweets that was in that thread was this one. Talent finds a way. Don't worry about who's watching. I played two years of high school varsity as a relief pitcher, pitching only 30 innings. Seven teammates had college commitments before I did. Through hard work, I finally earned a Stanford baseball scholarship my senior year. So take us into that, why you thought that was such a big lesson for you. Yeah, um, that, that was one that, that I think really resonated with me when I was like reflecting on writing this post. And um, I was like, all right, well, what, what are some of the lessons that I've learned? I feel like you know, I, I, I kind of got in this really introspective phase when I turned 30 this summer. So I was like, I'd been working on those thoughts for a while. Um, 
for me, it, one of the things that I, I tell a lot of parents that ask me about their kids playing baseball is, you know, what, what, you know, showcases should I do? What team should I be on? All this stuff. And I was like, at the end of the day, it's not like, yes, it is a little bit of your job to market your skills to coaches or pro scouts, but it's more their job to find the best players. And so like, it should be your primary, your primary job to be the best player that you can be. And you do that through hard work and through, you know, going into the gym and, and going on the field and working on the skills and doing that every single day. Um, and at the end of the, at, at, like, before you know it, you're going to find yourself in the position that you ultimately want to be in. Um, whether those, whether the opportunities to go to like Stanford come around or not, um, you're going to put yourself in the best opportunity found if you are making your, yourself as good as possible. Um, and I think a lot of times we focus on the externals and we don't focus on what we can control. Um, and so if you can focus on how to make yourself just a, a better person, a better man, uh, in whatever discipline you're, you're trying to be great at, um, you know, other people will eventually see that. Um, but you, you shouldn't be going out there and trying to show off your, um, you know, all the things that you're getting better at. Um, and, and, and I mean, there's, there's some business application to that. And obviously marketing is a huge part of that, but I think, it's more, there's more just about life. It's like, all right, the, the character that we want as men is being built um, behind closed doors. And at a certain point, people will see that and respect you and, um, and, and see the work that you've been doing because you're, you know, maybe you're, you're a more caring person. You're a better husband. You're a better father, right? Um, you're a better teammate uh, on whatever your sports team or business team you find yourself on. Um, and at the end of the day, it's going to really increase your opportunities to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. And there were a lot of other great tweets from that thread. And guys, I'm going to put the entire tweet thread here in the show notes so you can definitely check that out. But there was one other one that I wanted to uh, talk to you about because I thought this was interesting. You said this opportunity, opportunity comes when you least expect it. Be ready. My sophomore year, our number one Friday starter sliced his finger open two weeks before the season. He was out all year. I stepped in and ended up pitching every Friday night for the next three seasons, becoming a top MLB draft pick. So, so talk us through that because for a lot of people, it's just like, oh, you know, bad luck and opportunity is never going to find me. But talk about just the, the value of just being ready for that. Yeah. I mean, you never know when like your name's going to be called and to step into a big situation. And uh, obviously you you know, working hard and, and preparing yourself can be the biggest thing that can help you in seizing those opportunities. Um, I, I think I think people generally understand that. Um, I think what's really hard is saying, hey, this is what I want and I don't have it yet. Therefore, I'm going to stop working because it, it just doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. And, and I think that's when opportunity comes and goes and it passes you by because you weren't prepared and you weren't waiting. Um, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of, you know, biblical, <laughs> uh, you know, language that, you know, supports that um, just in, in, you know, expecting Christ's return and things like that. But it's like, like, there's always this kind of message of being prepared, being ready um, and, uh, and, and seizing those opportunities when they come, because you never know, like when they're going to come. And so like, we had our we had our, our starting rotation set my my sophomore year. Like everyone knew who was going to be the number one guy, and uh, and then 
you know, tra- tragedy struck. It was like a freak accident where this guy slices his finger open. He misses the whole season. They're like, hey, Mark, you need to step in and you need to compete against, you know, that year I faced Sonny Gray, Garrett Cole, like some of the top guys that are still top guys in the big leagues now. And I went toe-to-toe with them. And that's where I really learned how to compete, how to have success against some of the best guys, you know, in college baseball. And it gave me a lot of confidence going forward. Um, and I think without that experience, like without that happening, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't have been the pitcher that I was in college. Absolutely. And, and guys, again, the whole thread is really interesting. You should definitely read the whole thing. I'll put that in the show notes. I want to transition now, Mark, to talking a little bit more about just kind of generic baseball things. The first thing I wanted to kind of throw out there to you is it seems like we're witnessing in real time, the death of the modern starting pitcher. Because I feel like, especially when you watch the playoffs this year, starting pitchers weren't really pitching into the, I mean, not the seventh, eighth, certainly not the ninth inning. You know, you, you watch the World Series and, you know, look at Blake Snell a couple of World Series ago. He's having an amazing game, but the Rays system says you can't face the lineup for a third time in a row and they take him out and they end up losing the World Series, not because of that one decision, but it just so happened to be in the game that they got clinched uh, by the Dodgers. And so for you, what do you make of that? Because I, I got to tell you, I don't really like it. I like it. I guess for relief pitchers, because more of those guys are going to get contracts to, to make some money. But I don't really like the idea of every two or three innings seeing a new pitcher and then towards the end of the game, every two or three outs seeing a new pitcher. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, if you think about it, I feel like it's just the natural progression of strategy in baseball, right? You're like, all right, it's, it, it seems pretty clear that guys that are fresh typically pitch better than guys that have been pitching for five, six innings, right? And so as your manager, when you're making that decision, you're like, all right, I got a stable full of guys throwing 95 plus, 100, you know, 100 miles an hour, or I got this guy who's battled his way through five or six innings, probably has enough in him to go one more, but what's the point if we're close and we we really need to win this game? And, uh, and, And the Rays have taken it to the extreme where they're like, our analytic department says the third time through the lineup is not good for anyone. So we will never let anyone go the third time through the lineup. And I think I think that's taking it to an extreme because as a starting pitcher and knowing my experience, it's like, yeah, there are times there are times where it's like I probably need to not go through the lineup a third time. And then there are other games where I'm like, I could probably go through the lineup five times and not have any issues, right? And, uh, and, and I think part of it is like we're taking the human element out of the game a little bit with all the data analytics. And I think it, there's a huge value in managers that don't just go by the book, but they know their players really well from a human perspective. They have relationships with them and, and a mutual trust is built. And that, that takes time and you have to do it pretty quickly in baseball. But a mutual trust is built to where you guys can have honest conversations because I used to be the guys like never take me out ever. So I needed my coach to pull me when it was appropriate to do that. But as I've learned, as I learned myself, especially by my senior year of college, it's like I knew if I still had it and I knew how to get, the, if I knew how to get the guys out that I was facing next inning, I'm like, I'm still going, you know? And, and then there'd be games where I'm like, man, I'm kind of struggling and my command isn't as great. Like, and I know we got, a stud in the bullpen who would come in and clean this up. Like, let me trust my teammates and we'll get this win right here. So I, I think there's, I think we're getting away from that. Um, 
and and it's funny because the best pitchers in baseball are the ones that um, that can go seven eight innings, right? And and they're allowed to. But you, I think we're at a point where that's not the expectation and not the norm anymore. Like you have to earn that as a pitcher um, to be able to go, you know, the seven eight nine innings that. You know, I, I was familiar with in college. Yeah, I think I averaged almost eight innings to start. You know, it's yeah. kind of crazy. Well, I think that's interesting to talk about as well. And one thing that you mentioned is the velocity of pitchers like coming out of the bullpen. You have every guy throws close to a hundred with a hook. It's it's absurd. It's nowhere where where it used to be. But from your perspective as a pitcher, do you feel like we're getting close to reaching the human body's peak? for how fast a baseball can be thrown because you got guys like Jordan Hicks that, you know, throws that has thrown, you know, 104, 105 with movement. I think Aroldis Chapman has a 106 pitch, you know, it's more straight, not a whole lot of movement, but do you feel like there is a peak? Like, like someone can't possibly throw faster than this number. I, I mean, I, I would say yes at a certain point, but I think we're going to keep pushing that forward. Like, in every athletic feat that ever has ever been attempted, like we have continually pushed the boundaries of what we thought was humanly possible. And I think that will continue. Like everyone was like, oh, no one, it's not possible to run a four minute mile. Now people run four minute miles like it's nothing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there was like running a marathon under three hours. It's like, well now that's like a, a goal for like the average Boston marathon, right? You know, um, it, like there, there's just all these things that, um, and then I think what Nike did that documentary on like the two hour marathon, the sub two. And, uh, and, and so like these feats are being, you know, pushed more and more, you know, you look at gymnastics, right? And I know you had a, a podcast about Simone Biles, like, but what she does is un- like no other human can do that. Well, maybe in 30 years, that's going to be the norm for what we see on the gymnastics floor and all these routines, you know, um, we're going to see like almost humans be trained from a young age to be excellent at one thing. Um, and so I think that bar will be progressed more and more. Um, but the, the interesting thing about being a pitcher is it's not just about how hard you throw. There's so many other aspects to it. So the hardest throwers aren't always the best pitchers. Um, and, and so if we, we we've kind of gotten away from the, like the, the skill of pitching, um, in my opinion, I think there are a lot of guys that still do it really well, but the guys that, um, that throw the hardest, like you, you'll see a no name guy who you've never heard of and he's made it to the big leagues because he's throwing 98, 99, hundred miles an hour. And he's got one pitch, maybe a, a breaking ball. And in two years, like they've, they've, Use them. They've thrown him in all these games. You know, he's got seventy appearances a, a year, and after two years, his arms blown out. And now they got a new guy that is coming up from the minors and doing the same thing. And and back then, you know, maybe even like 10, 15 years ago, it's like a guy throwing a hundred. It's like big. Like that's huge headline news. You're like, wow, this is one of the best players in all of baseball. And now it's like, all right, that's you know, that's that's unique and that's new, but. Um, or that's unique and cool and and valuable, but it's not new anymore, you know? Right. It's kind of old hat at this point. Uh, Another thing that a lot of people are trying to, or a lot of people are talking about is 
artificially trying to speed up the game of baseball. So MLB is kind of tweaked and it made minor league baseball as well. You know, seven game or seven inning double headers, uh, putting pitchers on a pitch clock, you know, starting the runner on second base and extra innings, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Why don't you start them halfway in between third base and home and tell them that they can't be picked off? You know, what do you think about baseball, you know, baseball macro, trying to make all these changes to fundamentally change the game of baseball to make it faster, to make it quicker, to make it more like some other sport? I, I I understand why they're doing it, um, but I think they like what I'm concerned is that baseball is going to lose itself in making some of these changes. It's like it's like just the the fundamentals of baseball is, is it's not a fast paced game. Like football is downtime and then everything happening all at once. Basketball is back and forth, up and down the court. Um, and, and so baseball is like one pitch at a time and something could happen on any given pitch, but most often nothing does happen on any given pitch. And so it's, it's a much more leisurely watch. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of people, yeah, I didn't grow up like watching soccer or anything, but a lot of people would say baseball is probably more boring than soccer now, you know? And, uh, which is, which is crazy. Cause I always thought baseball was so exciting. Um, and and I still do, but uh, I, I think I think MLB. I think part of the reason that MLB is facing the issues that they're facing is because there are so many games, and there's almost like this like boredom I think that fans have because they're like, well, hey, we're losing this game, so you know it doesn't really matter that much. So each game like has a little bit less significance for every game, um, and. And then people are like, well, let's just speed these up because it's like, I imagine that no one would have any issues with a three and a half, four hour game if you only had two or three games a week, you know? Um, and, and so I, I get it. Like we, we like having long seasons, I think for the players and the owners, they like the revenues and all that stuff. But uh, from a, from a like fan experience, yeah, I mean, baseball is kind of a precarious situation because they want to have a more exciting product, but baseball isn't an exciting product if you're trying to just do like the quick, you know, 15, 10, 15 second clips. Um, yeah, you get a few highlights from a game every now and then, but it's like, man, you're, you're going to have a hard time convincing someone with those clips if that's what they're expecting every single time um, to go to a game and be like, wait a minute, this isn't what it's like you said it was going to be like. Like I thought they were going to be hitting home runs or stealing bases or striking everyone out every single moment of the game. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's just interesting. Um, I don't know if I have any like opinions on how to fix it, but um, I just don't want baseball to lose like what makes baseball baseball, you know, in the process. I think if you've never played baseball, you think it's boring because when I'm watching baseball, I'm looking at how the catcher is setting up. I'm, I'm looking at kind of the defensive shifts, even though the defensive shifts now have gotten like obnoxious, but like even whenever a, a guy hits a ball really hard, whether it's a home run or not, I always rewind it to see if the pitcher missed his spot. Or to see if the pitcher nailed his spot, but the pitcher or the, the hitter just got his barrel on it. Like, I think that's really interesting, but it's not really for everybody. Uh, the, the last thing kind of on this, and this is my least favorite thing about modern baseball. I'm literally getting angry just thinking about describing it to you, Mark. But it's how everything now in baseball is being pimped everything. So you have these guys like Acuna and like Soto and, and some of these other dudes, they'll hit a home run in May. 
in a seven run ball game that they're winning or losing and they are pimping it like they just won game seven of the world series. Like they just walked off the world series because guess what? If you're Joe Carter and you hit a home run to win the world series, go crazy, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run. I'm down with all that. David Freeze, you hit a walk-off home run game six of the world series to send it to a game seven. I'm great with that. Yeah. But I feel like it's like rotting what our children, because like even kids now they turn a double play like an everyday double play and it's, Oh yeah. What? And then they do their little TikTok dance and they move on. I can't stand it. It's driving me nuts. Am I just an old curmudgeon or is this a problem? I, I don't think you're an old curmudgeon. Let me just say that. First of all, um, I don't, I, so I think the problem that people have with it is because it's like, dude, you're in a, you're a big leaguer. Like act like you've been there before. Like this isn't the only home run you're ever going to hit. Right. Like it's different. Like Dan was named Dan, Daniel Camarena with the when he hit that. He was like a relief pitcher with the Padres this year who hit the grand yes. slam off Scherzer. Yeah. <laughs> like okay, like if you can celebrate all you way. want, yeah, walk exactly. around the bases. I don't care. Like no one's gonna blame you for that, right? Uh, but guys, you know, guys that are like the best of the best. It's like and they're they're pimping stuff. People are like generally, hey, act like you've been there before, whatever. And I think this goes to the fact that, like, again, what we were talking about with the, the time issues and things that baseball is trying to change, it's like people just realize that each game in itself is not that important, right? Over the course of the season, there are maybe one, two, three games or a series that is like, man, it's August. We're facing our rival. It's number one, number two, and whatever division we're in. Like, this is a huge series. We need to show up. We need... And and no one has issues when people pimp, right? Those those you know those home runs or or you know strike someone out, yell and get all excited. Like no one has. I don't think people have issues with with those moments that are huge moments. And if you know baseball, you know they're huge moments, and they make a great play. Um, it's it's the everyday like wow, you turn a double play, you know, or or you hit a home run and you're up ten runs already. Like you're pimping something like. It, 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 for me, it's the moments, and, and it's the moments that are important um, that allow the emotion to come through and people to be okay with it. And part of me thinks that, gosh, we just play so many games that most people understand that each game in itself is not that important. Maybe there's one moment of every game that is really a big moment, and usually those moments happen in the early innings because – a lot of, I mean, rarely games end up coming down to the last out, um, you know. But when they do, those are the exciting games, and that's when the emotion really starts to come out. So I'm, I'm fine with emotion. I think it's, I think it's probably good for baseball. But like you, I think it, it needs to happen in the right situations. And baseball as a whole just doesn't provide a whole lot of big moments for the emotions to come out in a way that makes any sense. Um, unlike a lot of other sports, you know. Right. I'm fine with emotions as well, but I'm kind of from the Barry Sanders old school, like, Hey, scored a touchdown, toss the ball to the referee and, and move on with your day. Yeah. But I, especially when I see kids, cause I've got a one and a half year old and another boy on the way, you know, I'm going to, you know, encourage them to play baseball and those different things. They have to play sports. They just get to pick which ones, but it's kind of that thing is like, if I see my seven year old, like hit a single and if he starts, if he pulls a gold chain out of his pocket and throws it over the top and like starts doing a dance, I'm going to yank him off that field so fast. 
Like I, I might leave him at the field. I might just hang him up on the fence and leave yeah. him there for a night. Like it just absolutely the thought of it just drives me insane. But now, Mark, I, I know we're kind of winding towards the end here. I want to get some snap answers to you or from you oh about some some baseball related questions right i'm going to make you pick some of your favorites here but we're just going to go snap and if i'm interested in your question i or your answer rather i'm going to ask you kind of a follow-up but let's just kind of launch into this i think you'll do just fine all right in your opinion this is all in your opinion so you can't be wrong unless you are wrong and then i will point it out to you <laughs> but who is the best po position player in baseball right now oh gosh i my snap answer is juan soto and I know we've talked about him, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I think defense, offense, like, I mean, he, he's he's phenomenal. Like, I, from every pitcher that I've talked to or heard of that's faced him, he's like, he's the hardest out in baseball. Okay. I thought you were going to say Trout, which would have been the correct answer. So you're yeah. 0 for 1. Let's get into the next one here. All right. <laughs> Who is the best pitcher in baseball right now? Um, best pitcher in baseball... Let me actually change it. Let me actually change it on you, okay? If you had to have another pitcher win a game, a start, like okay. right now, who's that pitcher going to be to like save your life, right? So not just the guy with the best stuff or the guy, you know, with the biggest contract. Who is the best pitcher right now when it comes down to the nitty gritty? Um, gosh, I, I got to go. I got to go with with the organization that's right in my side of my checks. Zach Wheeler, 100%. Like, I think what he did this year was phenomenal. Over Garrett Cole, over Max Scherzer, who would have been my pick, like Zach Wheeler? Yeah, I think so. All right, I will let the Phillies know that you're a great public relations <laughs> asset for them. Uh, next one here. If you could pitch against any baseball player that's ever lived, who would it be? Um, Ted Williams. Okay, why Ted? Uh, I mean... One, he's one of the best hitters of all time. So being able to face the best is, you know, and, and you could probably make a lot of uh, a lot of arguments as why other people are better, and they probably are. But um, I, I just, I think I have a lot of respect for, for Ted Williams and his career. And um, just, I, I just know he's like a high character guy, or he was a high character guy as well. So um, I don't know. There, okay. That's First, first answer, Ted Williams. Teddy ball game, Teddy ball game. Okay, if you could pitch to any catcher that ever lived, whether they, they're playing now or whether they've ever played, what would be the one catcher you would have loved to thrown to? Um, Yadier Molina? I was going to say, if you said anybody else, I was going to yeah. tell you you were wrong. But Yadier Molina, so yeah. I'm going to make you give me follow-up. So why Yadier? Yeah. I mean... One, he's. I think he's going to go down as the best defensive catcher in all of baseball history. Like, and he probably already is. Like, I don't. I don't think that's. There's really too much argument around that. Uh, I've heard from like young guys that have pitched to him, like coming up. It's like, dude, I don't even have to think. I just throw. Like, he just puts the number down. And, and that's like mean, part of part of the fun of pitching is like figuring out how to get these guys out. But it's like Yachty, his instincts are so incredible that it's like you don't as a pitcher you don't even have to you just throw like throw whatever he's putting down he's going to tell you to shake too it was like you like it's a mindless game at that point and you're just like all right pick up the glove throw it there and probably going to have some success you know very good all right next one here 
Who is the most underrated baseball player of all time? Underrated? Yeah. Oh my gosh. This one's a tough one because you got to think about all the players yeah. ever, but who's the most underrated baseball player ever? I don't like these snap. snap Sorry, answers. you got to deal with um, it, smart guy. Let's go. Most underrated baseball player ever. Um, Here, let me give you mine, and that'll give you yeah. a little bit of extra time to think. My most underrated ever, again, kind of a little bit of a homer, is Stan Musial. Okay. Because when you look at his career and his numbers and how he performed, if he if his career had taken place in New York or Boston, like he would be talked about like Ted Williams has talked yeah. about, like Joe DiMaggio has talked about, because he's right there in line. He's a top 10 player ever, but you don't really hear people talk about him as much. So that would be my most underrated. Gosh, I, like it's still, I think it's still like hard for me to think. So I'm not, I'm honestly not a great baseball historian, um, but I mean, Sam Usual, he's a, he's a Hall of Famer, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, we'll circle back. We'll circle back. I'm going to, this is the second time I've thrown you a lifeline, but that's okay. I'm going to let you flounder <laughs> just a little bit more. We'll get to some easy ones. This is probably the easiest question I'm going to ask you all day. How much better are the St. Louis Cardinals than the Philadelphia Phillies? Cause oh we know gosh. that they are, but, but like how big is the gap? Like, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, not as big as, as a lot of St. Louis fans think. But there's still a gap. Was I mean, it, when, oh, when, when you're winning, how was the winning streak this year? It's like 17 games or something? Yeah, I think it was 17 games and then 11 World Series titles, second most ever. Okay. So. By the way, I know you're a huge Cardinals fan. Like, when you're talking about David Freeze, I was at game six in 2011. Are you serious? Yeah, I was there with how my brother. How did I not know this? Yeah, he was he was in college at WashU in St. Louis playing basketball. And, uh, and so I came out. Like literally it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday night or something like that. And I came out and hung out with them for like two days and we went to the game. It was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> the best game in the history of baseball. I was like, the, I told my brother, I was like, the only way I enjoy a world series game more than that is if I'm playing in it. Yeah. And yeah. There's no it's way. It's game seven and we clinch. Like even, <laughs> even then it's like, so yeah, that's the most insane game I've ever seen. That's crazy that you were there. Yeah. All right. Next one here. What is the greatest baseball movie ever? Sandlot. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah that one's yeah. easy. We don't even have to spend time on it. It's it's easily number one. Get, get out of here with Major League and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right. Who is your personal favorite pitcher of all time? Nolan Ryan, 100%. Okay, so why not? Mine would be Randy Johnson. Why is yeah. Nolan Ryan your favorite? He's a Texas guy. Um, he, he's a hard worker, throws hard. Um, I, I, I love watching old clips of him when I was growing up and being like, man, this guy just doesn't, he doesn't care about anything except just shoving right now. And, and I love that mentality. Um, and I tried to channel that a little bit in college and stuff. And, um, and then I, I, I got a chance to meet him. He was a special advisor to the Astros general manager when I was with the Astros. And, um, he sat in a few bullpens and I got to meet him. It's like, it was one of the coolest experiences for me just because he was a childhood idol for, you know, for baseball. And, um, obviously, yeah. I mean, one of the best careers as a pitcher, for sure. For sure. All right. Who's your favorite position player of all time? My, I mean, my favorite, I got to, again, go with hometown uh, Craig Biggio because he was an Astro for life, uh, Hall of Famer, and, uh, and he played so many positions. I thought he was just so versatile. Um, I mean, he was versatile. 
But uh, as someone like you know, Texans have a lot of pride in their in their state. It's like seeing seeing a guy like Craig Biggio, like he became the pride of Houston uh, through his entire career. And I mean, he was like every child that I grew up with. And we were in, you know, in Little League and all that stuff. Like we were always wearing Biggio jerseys. So. All right, now we're getting down to the brass tacks here, okay? Who is the greatest pitcher of all time? Not your favorite, even though it can be the same one, but who is the yeah. single greatest pitcher to ever throw? Um, I mean, I have to I mean, I have to say Nolan Ryan, and I don't, I okay. think I think it'd be hard to argue against that. Um, I think there are a few other in the in the mix, but I mean, I got to stick with Nolan. I mean, career leader in Strikeouts, uh, seven no hitters. It's like pretty, pretty phenomenal. Um, and, and he, he did pitched it, about a billion innings. And he did it for a long time. Yeah. And I think that was the coolest thing. He pitched in parts of I think four different decades. Which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, just the, insane. Yeah. So. All right. So last one on this vein here, but who is the greatest baseball player of all time overall? I mean, everyone's says Babe Ruth, I'm sure. Uh, just, you know, I, I think, I think we're, we're seeing some incredible baseball players and I don't know why I didn't think about, you know, Mike Trout because <laughs> earlier, because he is probably the best player in, in, in baseball right now, even though they're never in the playoffs. No. Uh, I mean, Sho- Shohei and what he did this year was unbelievable. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll take the easy route and say Babe Ruth. Yeah, it's kind of an easy answer. If you were to say who's the greatest position player ever, you you would have to ignore Babe Ruth's pitching stats. I'd probably right. say someone like Willie Mays at that point because yeah. as a power hitter, as an average hitter, as a center fielder, yeah. he was probably the greatest. But, you know, when you talk about the greatest ever, it's like yeah, Babe Ruth's kind of the consensus, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and then if you talk about hitter, and I'm, I'd, I'd actually be curious – we don't have to talk about it now, but I'd say Barry Bonds might be the best hitter. Oh, no. Why? We were rounding towards the end here. Why would you bring him up? He's the worst thing to happen to baseball since Pine Tar. What are you talking about? Pure hitting ability. He injected steroids into his forehead so that he could hit the ball way farther. And I get out of here with all these arguments about, <laughs> oh, well, bef- he was a Hall of Famer before he started juicing. Was he? Do we know that for sure? The problem never is, know. is he turned in he turned into in the Incredible Hulk at some point, and it also doesn't help that the guy was an absolute jerk. Come I, on, Mark. I agree. I agree. I'm not trying to say anything about his character or the decisions he made. I'm just saying – what, and yeah, he, he definitely had some help, but probably had the best hitter. Help. Had, had some, some help. help. What are you talking about? It wasn't like he yeah. got corrective lenses. This no. guy started injecting crap into his butt, and then he started launching baseball yeah. 700 feet. I'd say that's pretty good help right there. Oh my gosh. I will say this. Mark McGuire pretty much ruined my childhood. He stole my innocence Uh, from me and I'll uh, never forgive him for it. But you know what? Before we get off into another tangent, I blow another gasket. I got one more question for you, Mark. Uh, Typically at the end of my show, I do uh, a a little segment called, what would you say to somebody that said, and then I I fill in the blank with just this one statement. Okay. But I'm not going to do a bunch of them with you. I'm just going to do one because it's, it's kind of the ultimate question here. So what would you say to someone that said, Mark Appel will eventually pitch in the major leagues. I would say thanks for the belief. <laughs> um, and 
I think there's been a lot of people, you know, if that was said to me in college, it'd be like, well, yeah, sure. But a lot's happened since then. And so, you know, I graduated in 2013. That's when I signed. It's been, you know, it's been almost nine years since that's happened. And, uh, and I've been out of baseball for like four of them. And so, um, it feels, it feels a little bit like I'm an underdog at this point. Um, and, uh, but at the end of the day, I think one of the things that I've learned is that like, man, my identity is not found in, in whether I play in the big leagues or not. I still love to, but if I don't like, I don't, I don't see my life or my career or anything like that as, as a, as a failure. Um, but yeah, I think people that say, Hey, Mark, Mark is going to play. It's like, it's really cool to see, um, people still believe in me for sure. All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. And thanks for all your time on all these questions, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, no, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, appreciate, appreciate you and what you're doing. And, um, it's great talking to you today. Yeah. Thanks for making me angry multiple times. Come on, Mark. We got to be better than that. But Mark <laughs> Appel, thank you so much for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Mark Appel. I really, really enjoyed everything that we talked about on this particular episode. But before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a couple of links for you. Number one, we spent a little bit of time. I wish we could have spent more time on it, but you know, it's going to be good for you guys to read through it. But it's the tweet thread that he posted in September of this year that went viral. But then also I posted the article and it's called Why Mark Appel perhaps the biggest bus in MLB history is stepping away at 26 years old. Because I think that's a great article to read because this is an article from the past. I've read, you know, this would have been written several years ago. And, you know, he's learned so much by that time. But just reading about where this guy was and the scrutiny that he was under and for him to have that perspective is a really cool thing. All right, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.